In this episode of Present Tense, Heart of the Matter, I'm deep in conversation with free improvisation guitarist, avant-garde musician and writer, Davy Williams. Together we move from topic to topic, including birth, addiction, art, cancer, the practice of being, and more. Davy Williams has had an impressive artistic career, and I have performed with Davy many times over the years. For more details on Davy's career, check out our website at greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. Most importantly for me was our friendship that spanned 30 years. I met Davy in Birmingham after I moved back from New York City. Davy was part of the Surrealist movement in Birmingham in the late 1980s, and I jumped in with both feet. He was far out and mind-bending, sensitive and kind, and I bonded with him. This episode is a tribute to Davy Williams, who died on April 5th, 2019. I learned of his death as I was working on this episode. Davy, I hope you'll let me know when you get a minute. over here and get my water. Okay. So let's just keep recording. Anyway. All right. And where are you going? Just right here. Oh. A few feet away. When I was a kid, I either wanted to be a soldier or none. Soldier or none. Uh-huh. And you think of the two biggest hierarchies in the world. Yeah. Uh-huh. Those two. Yeah, there you go. Oh, I thought about either soldier or, uh... I wasn't clear on that. It certainly was a musician. I never gave one <laughs> thought whatsoever to a musician. I just thought people needed protecting because I lived in a violent home. Oh, yeah, you did. I forgot and about And so... That. I thought, you know, that if I was a soldier, yeah, I could help people mm-hmm. and fight, fight what was wrong. <clears throat> I've been trying to write about that a little bit lately. Uh, the, the the huge misperception I had 
as a kid of uh, at that many kids did at least male kids of war in the military. See, Nico didn't have that because she was in the military. The people that are actually military brats or military people, wives, enlisted actual military personnel, <clears throat> they know different. <clears throat> they know very different. But on the civilian world, <clears throat> the notion of war and military stuff is, for me at least, hugely romanticized speculation. Based on World War II? Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Exactly based on World War II. Uh, and uh, and generation of World War II. Yeah. Well, your readers are reading at least. Yeah. Uh, yeah, based on there being uh, there was a whole a right and a wrong. Uh-huh. A good guy and a bad guy. A good guy and a bad guy, and and the enemy was identifiable. And uh, at least uh, in America, the enemy wasn't civilians. Uh, I mean, not well. Yes, it was with the Japanese thing in internment camps, but I mean, by civilians, I mean Germany and Japan and Europe, Russia had devastating swaths of their population, of civilian populations, removed by war for the first time. But it got passed over as mm, the good war. You know, Studs Terkel, you know, which actually yeah. had, was a bunch of people's stories about how not good it was, but it, it, it had that reputation, you know. And and that that was that was how I understood it, you know. But I really I have an understanding of the world that I think comes out of studying Buddhism, but and and does not drive with what I see around me or read, but is incredibly hopeful, which is this notion of emptiness. Mm -hmm. That everything rises out of emptiness falls mm -hmm. back into emptiness. Mm -hmm. Emptiness is alive and infinitely creative. And that there's not any good or bad. That, mm -hmm. that, that doesn't even... But that there is... Um, and there's an ultimate truth that, mm -hmm. that can we can control. Which mm -hmm. is that we can see through, we can train ourselves to be able to see reality clearly. Uh -huh. Which is that violence rises out of fear and we yeah. don't have to keep engaging in it. That's right. And that's why you practice. That's right. That's, it's not to, it's just to be able to create a world you want to live in. Exactly <laughs> right. It's and, better. And, and, and for us, and for nearly, it, for probably more than half the people in the world, but less than all the people in the world, that desire is. Uh, Sounds like it's over there. Oh, is uh, necessarily oppositional to the status quo. Yeah, I, the, the thing about it is. Uh, can you envision 
like, let's say Bhutan or I suppose another romanticized notion, Himalayan cultures, Buddhist cultures, where, uh, as I understand it, it could be that the majority of the population does practice, uh, at least uh, striving towards, but I could be wrong about that. that see, that could be another totally, like, I don't want to think about Tibet, so what I read, listen. Well, like, I know that some of the teachers who had to leave Tibet because of the Chinese invasion, when they came here, they said that they were actually grateful to the Chinese for invading. Because uh -huh. the practice of meditation had been lost in their countries, and people, oh, uh -huh. people would just pay folks just like indulgences in the West in the Catholic oh, I Church. Oh, I get you. Okay, yeah. So the thing, I mean, the thing that I mm -hmm. see is that people are people. Yeah. Everywhere they had problems with sexual abuse in the monasteries, and you know, people are people. Mm-hmm. Reliably. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Existence is suffering because we want it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's interesting. So uh, I had figured that it, in all likelihood, something is world celebrated and huge as in influence and adored by Westerners as much as Himalayan Buddhism would have to have become a sham at some point, you know. Yeah, of course it's just another projection. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Okay, populism stinks no matter what color it is. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I departed the hierarchy. Yeah, Because hierarchies got... are hierarchies. Yeah, there you go. Well, I never even got into the real world of it. Uh, you know, I just had some Tibetan Buddhist records, which I really like. Well, that's probably a very authentic and pure way to experience because mm -hmm. you're you're dealing with the artists. Uh -huh. You know, you're dealing with a form that can't really lie very well. That's right. Uh, and uh, yeah, actually going to Tibet was never uh, in my. Well, the thing is, I've never gone anywhere, or even really uh, enjoyed going anywhere. So maybe a few vacations with my parents, but I don't like going somewhere that I don't have a gig. <laughs> Almost everywhere that I've ever been out of the country or even out of the state is because I had a gig there, and uh, I don't really uh, like uh, you know just going somewhere to. Uh, soak up a place, you know, or something like that. Even though when we went to the Canadian Rockies, we used to go to the coast and vacations with mom and dad, you know, and that was, I saw some great stuff out there that I probably, because you're not going to get a gig in the Canadian Rockies, right? You have to just make a point of going there, you know. <laughs> but, I have this uh, river cane flute that a guy in the Sipsi made. Mm -hmm. And he makes, his name's James Gilliland. That name rings a bell a little bit. He's a, fl he's a part Cherokee flute maker, and I have one of his flutes, so now I just, when I travel I, to some places, I take it with me, and mm -hmm. now it's got a lot, where I've played at a lot of different places. Oh, that's good, yeah. It's kind of like, when I go to a place, I, I play it to honor 
what the place is, mm -hmm. you know, like to offer that instead of just going and taking whatever it is that yeah. the place is there for me to take mm -hmm. or whatever. It feels like with the flute, it's a way for me to offer something out to the place. That's right, to contribute to the place. I suppose after a fashion, playing gigs could be considered like that. But, well, that, but, it's, but it's more mercenary than that, you know. <laughs> I mean, can I afford to go there, or is it going to actually pay enough to get a, across the pond to begin with, you know? Yeah. I really want one thing I love to learn about people is like what their birth story is, or if they know it. Birth? Your birth story. I know a little bit about it. Is that, uh,. My mom said I was born around 7 in the morning uh, at York Hospital. And uh, uh, that for, and then I have heard that for about three days I had something called glandular fever. Never known what that was. I think I'm remembering that right. Or rheumatoid, rheumatoid something fever. I don't remember some kind of, and I was actually kept in an incubator. Whatever that meant in 1952. Uh, I don't know if it supplied oxygen or by as by implication heat. I don't know what that was about. Never did find out. Uh, and I wasn't breathing properly. I mean, that's all I know about my actual birth, is that it had, it was early in the morning on August the 18th, and uh, in the middle of the Korean War, which nobody knew a thing about, uh, and uh, there's a lot of stuff going on parallels that, to that. That doesn't actually have anything to do with me or my birth. All it was. Was your father involved in the war? Well, he had an interesting thing. He was uh, trained as an infantry, and he, in nineteen, he was going to be uh, part of the invasion of Japan, which, as you know, did not take place. When so they were at sea, or just took an atomic form. Yeah, rather uh -huh. than a human. That, yeah, that's right. It was yeah, once yeah. The soldiers went there after the fighting was over, but he, they were at sea and the war ended while they were at sea. It took weeks to get over there to begin with. So, war ended. Instead of going to Japan, he got sent to uh, Korea, where. Uh, the fight was over, so he uh, was in the quartermaster court, had trained his infantry, put him in charge of this warehouse full of uh, beer, well, it was a quartermaster, every kind of stuff in there, including giant pallets of beer, some of which would break open, you know, and therefore... Had to be consumed. Had to be consumed, and so he was uh, getting drunk, smarting off to the sergeant and so some lieutenant comes along and this is in the winter in Korea because he shipped out and would have been there in the summer and then the fall 
He was because Korea is cold, you know, it's north, and so uh, he uh, got at punitive duty uh, walking night <laughs> shift guard duty outside the post, you know, lousy job, lousy job. Months, a few months, uh, a month, a few, uh, some of the length of time that goes along, so finally Dad goes to the uh, lieutenant and says, look, I screwed up, but I, got, I don't want to just spend my whole enlistment uh, walking guard duty. So then he got back to the quartermaster corps, made sergeant, got out, came home, married my mom, who they had already been going out anyway. And uh, uh, there we go. I had trouble getting pregnant, so I've heard. Vitamin deficiency or something. But anyway, obviously it worked. So you were in the hospital in an incubator for three days, and then they brought you home? That's as far as I understand it, yeah. There's a lot of research that shows the impact of on a on infants of being separated from human flesh those first three those first uh-huh. days. I it's don't apparently know that I would, tremendously yeah, I, impactful. It, it certainly would be, I can imagine. Although I don't know how being in an incubator, whether if I was completely not touched by humans. Or whether I simply spent most of the time. Yeah. Don't know about that. I don't know whether I was breastfed or bottle fed. I don't totally don't know about. It. And I think it part of why I like to ask people the question is because I think it's so interesting that something that's so important, many of us really don't know. Uh-huh. Nobody told us. That's right. Any well, when there's so much like what was her pregnancy like? Oh, yeah. No what was idea. she thinking about? Yeah. No idea about that. And I think that's so interesting. So, for you, you said that you started, you know, when you were a kid, you romanticized war. Mm-hmm. Like so many boys, and also boys yeah. from that period of time. Mm-hmm. Also, probably boys from Alabama, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Um, when were you born as an artist? <clears throat> That's a good... I don't know. Uh, as far as, like... Uh, it was before I actually did any art. I remember always being interested in illustrations in books, you know, as well as reading books. Like, Mom was interested, but she'd read to us on our, on, she'd have us in her lap, and we'd be reading the book, and she would point out every word as she read it. So we were functionally reading before we even started school. Good Mom. Yeah, uh-huh. They were always big readers, even her uh, somewhat racist backwoods. See, my grandfather, he, he was uh, not a farmer. Well, for a while they were sharecroppers, but most of his life he was a 
machinist and eventually became a master machinist, working in various sawmill sawmill towns in the middle of fucking nowhere, you know, south and eastern Alabama, you know. And, uh... Pierre William Faulkner. Yeah, like, maybe like, not, not so much the Snopes, it was... It was even more backwoods than that. Uh, wow. I mean, well, you know, I don't know, just piney forests, you know, and but they they had they had been a earlier one on my mother's side who had been down in Mobile and uh, had uh, had was a store owner and very possibly even a, acquired a certain amount of land. But then I think his sons totally screwed everything up, put the whole family into poverty for a generation or two. Because my grandfather, by the, on my mother's side, the way he met my grandmother was he hoboed out to uh, Kansas, happened to meet her, who was a, uh, what do you call it, uh, orphan. Growing up with a woman named Mrs. Ward, that wasn't her mom. I can't. My, there's some story that, that she might have had some Indian uh, Cherokees out west Indian uh, blood, and also uh, that's a that's a that's an apocryphal story that I always heard all along. And it's conceivable because she was out there in what was then Indian Territory. Well, on, well, maybe not Indian Territory, but it was still a bunch of... Maybe not, I don't know how that worked. But anyway, he hoboed out there because everything in Alabama was just for shit and no economy at all. Met so that her. would have been the 20s? Yeah. Met, they were both born in like... 1899, yeah. 1900, right now. And so he, uh, and this was before the Great Depression. This was actually just, just some of the hard times right after World War One. The Roaring Twenties in Alabama, they didn't even know about it. You know, we didn't know about the Roaring Twenties. It wasn't Roaring. I don't think it was Roaring was draw people, you know. Or, I don't know if they were ever transfers. But anyway, uh, he went out west, met big girl, who was a tiny person, incidentally, like five feet tall. Known as big girl, always. And by the grandchildren. And big mama by her own children. Iron, you know, a little bit. Then, um, right, so they came back to South Mississippi and were just totally hard scrabble. And then at some point, Papa, William Jasper Bozum, my grandfather on my mother's side, picked up metalwork, blades and, you know, and, and also working for these logging railroads who had need for machinists. Sure. Sharpening yeah. saw blades, working. He worked on, uh, they had two steam locomotives and then he worked on the locomotives, you know. Reputedly, actually, they tree limb fell on the whistle and <laughs> broke the whistle off. So he had actually had enough acumen to cut a new whistle 
you know, however whistle it was made, you know, for locomotive. And so, uh, and he and he was a master machinist. And uh, my brother and my cousin, they went down there and they found uh, one of the old graveyards. What most likely uh, what was made by him a metal grave marker of his father's grave. And the, the likely speculation is that he made you know, one of his first actual metal, because he was not an artist, he didn't do, but he, you know, strictly stuff of necessity, and I saw a picture of it, you know, and it's like not just a simple, mm, it's not ornate and it's not artistic, but back to me discovering art. That was a long Yeah, you, well, you were saying that that you were talking about reading in your family. Uh -huh. and, and also... And saying that he... It, although that... He was, had had a certain... Uh, functional... De facto artistic... Uh, work skill. He had a craft. A craft. That's his craft, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is akin to art, but... And then and later in life, he took up paint by numbers. <laughs> I've actually got a couple really? of them. Really? <clears throat> yeah. Uh -huh. Paint by numbers is fun to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. And uh, it, uh, well, yeah, we all did them, you know, when we were kids. I don't know if anybody does them these days. Uh, they probably still make them. Anyway, <clears throat> my experience with art, I, and I only realized this later, is that at a certain point, <clears throat> this is when we were still kids at York. Uh, my mom, they sold World Book Encyclopedias door to door, you know. <clears throat> and uh, one of the encyclopedias, one of the books, he went, we had a set up. And so one of the books that came with the World Book encyclopedia set was a single slim volume devoted to art. And I be, by slim I mean it still had probably a couple hundred pages of just roughly speaking the history of art and quality small but you know how the world book looks but nevertheless reproductions of everything from Abyssinian art Surrealist art. When I when they died, and I went back and I was looking through the stuff, and I said, "Oh yeah, there's just yeah." Let me look at this, and I realized that even when I was ten years old, I had already seen reproductions of the whole history of modern art. I can remember looking at Max Ernst paintings. And I thought, "Wait a minute, Max Ernst. Wait a minute. I was seeing these. Now I remember I was seeing these images since I was a kid." Attaching no significance to them, but they were registering anyway. You know. And uh, so, uh, that I've been thinking about it. Uh, that I think is the first experience I had with art as a uh, as an entity to be considered, you know, but is doing it 
that didn't come until like, like I wasn't like one of those people that just always drew or anything like that. Uh, I Psychedelic posters came along in high school and I was interested in imitating some of that. But even that was not really like making pictures. I, that, I took an art course once I got to the university and I was really terrible at it. We didn't have any art instruction in Utah. Laughable, I did. <clears throat> and so, uh, and no emphasis on that whatsoever. <clears throat> I was sissy, so. So, in any case, I uh, took this course at the university, naively thinking, yeah, probably like art, you know. And uh, <clears throat> then this. Was it a studio class or was it an academic class? It was. Uh, it was going to be a studio class, mm -hmm. and then this, this, uh, undergrad assistant sort of says, quite rightly, I really don't think you've got any talent at <laughs> all. You ought to give this up. I, I thought, okay, <laughs> so I did, and then had a bunch of friends that were artists, and. Uh, were painters and did know a lot about art. Then I started trying to do pictures, you know. I'll tell you what I loved, I loved playing music. And I was already in <coughs> bands, weird bands, you know. And I, I was about 11 years old and I decided, concretely decided I wanted to be a guitar player. I would believe, you know, oh man, that's what I want to do. And then I realized this gets back to practice that I was willing and didn't have anything else to do, social life-wise. Uh, to just spend 10 years sitting in my bedroom or playing along with a stereo, you know, or <coughs> just practicing, you know. And do you have any sense of where that rose from? Musically, no. I think it's rose from... Uh, I saw the Beatles on TV. It's being inspired. Be Beatles didn't inspire anything, but I saw the Rolling Stones for some reason. And that did. There was something unruly. And they were playing blues, basically, R&B and blues. And that grabbed me somehow. The sound of it, the look of it. I think it really had to do with... A lot of my life is governed by vanity, a certain type of vanity. That's how I quit drinking, you know. I just finally not, not like I needed to quit drinking, but I just, I didn't like the way I looked, you know, being a drunk, you know, and being not by my, being not myself, saying stupid shit, you know, and kind of being a weak individual, you know, it was, it was about vanity. I thought, no, oh, I can't have this. And I think that actually being a musician was connected immediately. <clears throat> Not immediately, but somehow with a sense of vanity. How sweet, Pete? <clears throat> with a sense of not vanity and a sense of... Uh, 
affluence, but just in the sense of uh, self-image or something like that. You know? I think a lot of it came from external sources. You know, even though I didn't have all these notions when I was, I don't recall having all these notions when I was a kid, like any kind of performance urges or to stand in front of people or do anything like that. What's been happening is, uh, uh, this is it. there's a lot of pain associated with this, my, for some reason, my uh, branch of, uh, <coughs> of uh, this cancer business. And so I have to be, uh, it's really debilitating. But right now, it's, uh, they put me on this pain patch. They've been trying various medications, none of which really helped a lot. But this one is sort of like, like right now, it's, at a, it's not so bad. Just sitting here, if I was to get up and try to walk, it would immediately become much more painful. But on the other hand... Uh, and it's still your back? It's, uh, yeah, it jumps around. It's, it's, uh, there's two things. There's a, what do they call it? A sore on my back. That's From not, being in the hospital? Mm-hmm. They called it a, uh, A bed sore. Not quite. Pressure, pressure ulcer, which is not an open lesion, but it's just this kind of like, looks like a blister but there's not liquid anyway it's just some kind of thing that's getting better but it it's uh painful to actually let's see if i can walk over painful to actually lay on but it's uh like doesn't hurt if not there's no contact against it and then there's this stuff inside that this uh that really is sort of like <clears throat> gets extremely debilitated. It'll just like kind of catch you like well I've never been stabbed but all of a sudden it's sort of like this sudden just like grippy pain. Like I was have let's see uh and it's the one that's really uh all right, all right, I hear y'all. Can I feed them? There's some, yeah. I, why don't you tell me where the food is and I'll... There's, uh, there, oh, I haven't looked at it since yesterday. But um, if you walk in and take the immediate out, there's a counter right there with the microwave on top of it. Yeah. And I, there could be... There's food in their bowl. Oh, what the hell? In that case, what the, screw them. I mean, I'd say there's like at least half a cup of oh, dry food in their bowl. Is that that's good? A, that's a, that's what they need. In that case, Nico already got that. I didn't realize it. And I'm going to look okay. at about They're pulling a, <clears throat> pulling a scam. Let's see if I can. So this thing showed up. Do you want your chair? And I'll be, I'll just bring it over. I'm bringing myself over. Okay. And these are all new skills. That I really haven't never occurred to me that that there's a skill like there's a pain right there. It's just like it's 
So what's the patch? The patch is fentanyl. What is it? Oh, it's fentanyl. Oh my God. <laughs> the the lightest. Um, what do you call it? Configuration of fentanyl that they prescribe. Can I hook you back up? Yeah, let's do that. Hold on just a second. But it probably ought to be uh, maybe a little stronger. But opioids are weird. I don't. I've like never. Bad problem with alcohol a few years ago. And so. Uh, <coughs> um, but on the other hand, who knows how long it's going to last? I can't just say. Uh, Try to get through life in debilitating agony. You know, I got to be able to do something. You know. Oh, you mean in terms of whether if whether to take opioids or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh huh. But uh, finally, I was I was resisting it, but then I realized, you know what? I ain't getting nothing done in my life. Right. You know. And even now, uh, the notion of driving is absurd. Oh, here we go. I don't know how well that pipe is talking, but it's, uh, it looks like it's kind of stopped up. Oh, no. Is, did you, did it work anything? Good. <clears throat> Tastes like good pot. I've been pretty lucky lately. Yeah, when I was a kid, my mother had these, all these art books that were table, oh, yeah. uh -huh. table kind of books. Uh -huh. So I always think I think it's so funny that I looked at them from the point of view of the one was particularly Renaissance paintings uh -huh. because they had naked people in them uh -huh. and I was curious about what that was all about. Yeah, uh -huh. I don't have any art skills, you know. Well, and I when I say artist, I mean I definitely include music. You don't mean just visual arts. No, I don't okay. mean just visual. I just mean. Um, one, a person who has an an art that they practice. Mm -hmm. Writing, for your in your case, for example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, tons of boys would p start playing guitar, and stay in their room and play guitar. Mm -hmm. But not many continue. Yeah, I didn't... Uh, For most, something about the world calls them away. Yeah. And off they go, because they really never got very good anyway. Uh, yeah, well, uh, the world... Uh, but your your path <laughs> is different from that. The world was, not instead of calling me away, was frightening enough to wear uh, <clears throat> It was okay for me not to go out there, you know, and hang out, you know, uh, until I had something, some reason to go place gigs or something but before that the real thing that I was always inclined towards reading and writing <clears throat> that was a I've always I didn't have an inclination towards the arts per se even writing but I've always been a voracious reader you know even ever since I could read it all you know I, I can remember seeing uh foreign languages for the first time, particularly in uh, non-Western uh, scripts, 
I mean, still as a kid, and thinking that's how, and then trying to remember what like a newspaper headline looked like before I could read, you know. <laughs> and I, I can almost remember it as looking like a foreign script, you know. Where you see images that don't have meaning for uh -huh. you. And they have form and shape, mm -hmm. but they don't have meaning, so they're real vague. I remember sitting in my mother's kitchen with a blue sheet of typing paper. Typing paper. And mother must have, she was in grad school, so she must have been doing something. But there was a pencil, and I probably was only three or four years old. But I started, I was writing, because I understood, you know, I came, oh, in my yeah. family, writing is important. Writing is powerful. We love writing. Mm -hmm, yeah. And so, I, little me, you know, that's our value system. I'm going to mm -hmm. do that. I'm going to be writing. Yeah. And mm -hmm. showing it, like, look, look what I wrote. And I'm mm -hmm. sure it was just doing this. That shows an early, once again, it, okay, so you had obviously had an early uh, predilection or fascination or whatever, attractional thing of some sort to, to writing as well. I think that I'm a person who desires to communicate with the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have oh, yeah. a strong uh -huh. sense of noticing things and experiencing yeah. things and then mm -hmm. there's a way in which I want to I want to share that in uh -huh. some way so there's lots of different forms that I've discovered I don't have to be a virtuoso to enjoy and to engage with different kinds of forms uh, yeah you mean like outside of writing because you are a virtuoso writer of course but you mean in some other art form? Yeah, right? like for me playing guitar. Oh, I got you. Just yeah, writing uh -huh. songs. What, you're making me nervous over there, buddy. What's up? What's that? You seem to be just meowing. Oh, okay. Uh, you're not like looking for somewhere to pee or something, because you did. Can you pick him up? Yeah. You want me to put him outside? If he'll go outside, did you? Was take, it, will he you, bite me or anything? I don't think so. No, I doubt it. You never can. Because you took a dump on the floor, which I had to clean up right in the kitchen. Hey, kitty. Now, what's, kitty. what's going on here, Scoots? This is this is making everybody... This is a, come on, Scoots. Hey, man, stop it. looks like he's got a wound or something. Yeah, Scooter does. I mean, Beanie does. So can I pick him up by the neck? Okay, uh, you probably could just pick him up by... Oh, yeah, there you go. Oh, actually, he'll be back in when Beanie comes out, because Beanie stole all his food. That's what happens. I just remember that. You come back in a little while, Scoots. So I'll feed you by yourself. The other one's still in here, though. Yeah. Me. Oh, here. Oh, no, here. that was me. Oh, we both have the same ringer. That's my therapist calling, but I don't have therapy until tomorrow. Oh, we have the same ringtone. Yay. Hurrah. Let's see. I forgot where we were. Well, we were talking about exploring form. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, 
Yeah, and you... So I think the world's interesting that way. And little kids, of course, they want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we were lucky that we both grew up in literate. Households. Yeah, I don't know what you do. Yeah. If you it, don't uh, have any access. Yeah, if you, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people in America, and probably worldwide even, that the numbers are even more appalling. Of, uh, but just to take America as an example, uh, a whole lot of us actually have a real deficient literacy rate, which means uh, try to read any of those books, Corbello's books, poetry, and just either A, not understand, not, not understand some of the words, or just not be able to make any sense out of it at all. You know, as if you really were trying to read Spanish without being able to read Spanish, you know? It's, it's yeah. Well, and um, I think for me, part of what writing is, is trying to understand the experience of being a living being, mm -hmm. to be able to be acutely aware of being alive and what that entails in a whole lot of different ways. I feel like I've started working on this new piece that's, I think, going to be called Binge, that's uh -huh. just about binging. Uh -huh. So, you know, like, I really... Uh, I, I don't do it that much now, but um, this whole where you can't just, like, have a drink and be done and go on about where you have to just binge the thing until that you can't me. right well I'm really familiar with that too and I sometimes do that eating as well oh, it's really? another you impress me as a binger of any sort that's interesting uh, because I hide it because it's, it's not yeah, well, right I mean mm -hmm. and so I have it controlled sense. enough to where I can more or less hide it, like, so, but I'm really curious about, because I've stayed away from it, mm -hmm. and now I'm like, no, you know what, and we're going to go in there and explore mm -hmm. what that is. That's some dangerous territory, No, no not, no, not doing it. Oh. Writing about it. Oh, wait a minute. Writing a minute. about it. Yeah. Opening it up. Yeah. And letting it go, what is that? Like, really oh, owning yeah, it in a mean? way oh, of yeah. going into all the detail of what it is instead of just saying, that's bad, that's horrible, oh, yeah, right. that's, uh -huh. you know, what is it? Mm -hmm. Where the hell did that come from? Uh-huh, where did this, yeah, you mean like, oh, okay, it could mean a lot of stuff. Because yeah, I right. remember, like, seeing people who, they would have one glass of wine, and then that's, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, no, I'm I'm good or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, what is that? Yeah. 
Uh-oh, I'm starting to feel tipsy. I'm what? No, wait, what? Yeah, what? Or girls who would say, no, I'm just going to put on my uh, slippers and my pajamas and just get in bed with a book. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, wait, you're not going to get incredibly fucked up tonight? Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, that was me. Okay, yeah, so... that was me. But... I'm really interested in exploring what that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is a whole other ballgame, especially if you don't do it experientially in order to research. Hell, I've done it so much. Oh, yeah, I mean, we both have. We've done, I could write a book. I've done, I mean, we've done it together. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm terrified to take it, to drink anymore because I do know that Right, because wisdom has finally prevailed. And genetically, I know that I'm predisposed to uh, addiction. Me too. Uh Uh-huh, and it... uh, They did not tell me, though, that when I was growing up, that my grandmother was an alcoholic who killed herself. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that could have... Maybe those stories should be told. It would have made a difference. Not if you really wanted it. Because we all do. I mean, we do. The us, people like us, we do. That genetically made up like us. Has the, but on the other hand, all he's got to do, at least if it's anything like alcohol was for me, is simply just to uh, not want to do it. Because what happened with me with alcohol was finally I realized, you know, I don't like this buzz. I don't like this kind of fuzzy thing. I don't like it. Uh, inevitably falling asleep uh, in a kind of a stupor, not being able to decide what I want to do later at night, you know, which is usually when I get a lot of my work done. Instead of doing that, you know, just kind of getting... So I just thought, you know, no, I don't like that buzz. I like pot better. <laughs> and... Uh, and mercifully hadn't actually gotten up with other addictive drugs except alcohols. I was just shaking, and if I didn't drink, man, I would see people coming through the wall. And not like, oh, I guess I thought I saw a guy over there. It's like, really there, physically there, wouldn't go away, you know. Like, people, you know, I was going into convulsions on the floor and stuff. But it's funny about this... uh, and I had five inpatient rehabs and four relapses. And the last one, uh, two consecutive ones over a period of few years at UAB Psych Unit, which was a totally cool, terrible place. But uh, it wasn't until I got out that it was, that I realized this thing about not liking the alcohol buzz. Every other time I got out, it was just a matter of when. Might make it six months. Might even make it six weeks. But I'd be jonesing for a hit, man, uh, for drinking the minute I got out, you know except for this last time and it was solely not because I was cured of anything it's just that all of a sudden I realized man I don't like this alcohol bus you know it's like saying I don't like having a crew cut anymore you know 
That's so wild. It was weird, man. It's a, not. Yeah, it was. It I mean, was, it does show the power of the mind. Does indeed, and I, and not even my willpower. Right. Uh, when you, really? well, that happened with me with smoking. Mm-hmm. Well, I did this thing where I recorded how much I love smoking. Like I spent maybe maybe a couple months where I'd just turn on the recorder and I'd really talk about how much I loved smoking. Like smoking was so intimate, bringing it into my body. Mm -hmm. I didn't. You know, I'd never been in a long-term relationship with anybody except smoking. Smoking was my most intimate, with Mm -hmm. me always, day in, day out. Wow, you probably should have published that. And so then I'm like mentally, you know, but I was done with smoking. It's like when you know Mm -hmm. you're done with a relationship, Mm -hmm. you knew you were done with alcohol. I was done. It was... It, we were over. And so yeah. in my mind, I like, and recorded putting smoking on a beautiful, not being mean to myself about it, yeah. not hating myself about it, not saying how weak and pathetic and da-da-da-da-da that I can, had continued to smoke, mm-hmm. but to honor this yeah. lover and put this lover appropriately on a, like a, a barge in a river uh-huh. with silks and scents and burn it away and mm-hmm. let it go. Let it go, And yeah. that's what I did, and then I slept for two weeks. Like I would go to bed at 5 o'clock because I'd smoked at night. I'd trained mm-hmm. myself not to smoke all day. When it got dark, after Edward was asleep, or later, after he'd grown up, just I would go out on the front porch, but always in the dark. Mm-hmm. Never in the day. So I could not be awake. At two weeks, I got up. I've never smoked again. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Makes sense, too. Uh, I remember the few, one time I quit smoking decades ago. I, it, it, what you were saying reminded me uh, if I get through all the routines that are associated with smoking, without smoking, that was getting somewhere for sure. And for years, it actually was in such that it was a whole period of the day, day or night, that at least you hadn't been smoking around the clock. <laughs> It was interesting. Yeah, that is very interesting. So, when you were in the throes of addiction, were you playing? Uh, well, uh, when I was in the throes of uh, alcohol addiction, uh, the last... I was playing, yeah, I mean, I was a, a severe alcoholic for a long time. and. But I wasn't drinking in such a way that it interfered with my playing. But by the time when I really had the alcohol sickness, uh, I was not playing. I'd go into a period of like, it would kind of culminate. A few months would go by and I'd realize that I'm, 
I'm practicing, you know, but then I realized, no, I'm not practicing. And then I realized, no, wait a minute, I'm not booking gigs. I might be playing gigs, you know, but I'm, and I'm not showing up drunk for gigs, but I'd be uh, going home and drinking around the clock otherwise, you know. And then uh, finally I was just, wasn't booking any gigs and uh, I was really too sick to actually physically make gigs anyway. And that was here, you know. And uh, Nico rode through that demon forest. Uh, she saw it too. And uh, then, uh, yeah. Uh, then just some kind of miracle happened. I don't know what to attribute it to, but I'm sure I'm glad that I, I don't like alcohol anymore, you know. I play gigs around people drinking, around people drinking all the time, you know. Because you decided. Yeah, because something just changed, yeah. Uh -huh. So like all of a sudden I decided, uh, I really don't like barbecue, you know. What I decided, I think really, for me, I wanted to be free. I wanted oh, to be yeah. free more than I wanted to be enslaved. And I viewed smoking as an enslavement. Yeah, I still do. Yeah, smoking is a whole other ballgame. I never, except for when I was, look, I was in the... Uh, in the... Uh, what do you call it? I was inside in the, in hospital and and in health care facilities for almost two months. No smoking there. Get back out and uh, I'm still you know I still would be if I had some cigarettes I'd go smoke them. Well, you but you found this little thing. You're yeah. vaping, yeah. Vaping, yeah. I have a vape thing. Mm-hmm. Do you? If I, if I need it. Like, if I have to. If you wanted to, you could smoke something, yeah. And it, that's okay, because I'm not going to get addicted to vape. I mean, it's just, not it's, like it's, it. it's uh -uh. I don't care what people say, it's a totally different thing. It, it's sort of, it's, uh, I, I mean, like it's, it all right, it, and, and it's, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, Similar, but not the same thing about long shot, actually. For one thing, there's no fire. And no fire, and so there's no thumping. There's no just, smoke. Uh -uh, no smoke, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm really curious with my art to explore some of these things in minute de detail, to get into the experience of being alive and write about it. Uh-huh. Well, uh, that's, that's sort of how you work in my vicarious. I mean, like, like going to uh, the aisles, you know, and studying this. Is, am I getting this right? Like, is that similar to uh, going over to the aisles and studying the monasticism, you know, from the 1300s, and then kind of like using that as the uh, 
Mm. Refined materials for whatever it is that actually comes out. Is yeah. that is that is it your, is that like what you're now what you're talking about doing is that except that it instead of being uh, 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 not not monk, uh, a sister. Uh, you're researching. You're researching. The inner uh, landscape. Uh, yourself. Uh huh. That's very cool. It's a logical step, actually. Because I think that we're it's for for most of us. Like if I think if I have a talent, it is for having very intense, detail-oriented experiences, and then interpreting that in some, or being able to, having a desire to share that with other people. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another factor that... Which is what an artist does. That's yeah. what you do with your music, it yeah. seems to me. Or is it? I think it actually is. And uh, me and Johnny Culler were talking about this, well, on a related topic. Uh, we were talking, I forget who we were talking about, Although he has this characteristic, and you do too, in addition to what you were just talking about, about <clears throat> experiencing th things and then expressing them, and the you have a, a your mastery of language itself. I mean, it, it it's like uh, I don't know a virtuoso musician, you know. The, the playing is so good and so skilled uh, that the listener or the reader you don't you almost don't notice it you know you don't I, that, don't get me wrong but I mean I, I didn't phrase myself right no I, I think I understand exactly it's, it's like if you look at Faulkner he's uh, his, his handling of language is such that he can be in a labyrinthine barbed wire thicket and he pulls you, man, he just sail through it, you know. I mean, you don't even think, man, it's fucking dense foliage here. Yeah. And you're, you're one of those writers, you have the, that, that, that skill of, <clears throat> the, the, the notion of, can you pull me through the, uh, me? The reader, can you pull me through this mm, passage? Uh, you know, and, and that of course, you know, like can Yasha Heifetz play uh, the Shakans? Yep, they're gonna sound great, and it's gonna be mm, for the most part not that hard for them to do. That's where your uh, language thing comes in. It's like, like I mean, I fuck around with sentences, you know. Like it's like somebody works on a car, got this paragraph over here, and no, fuck no, I go there, go. Whereas I get the feeling your yours flows much more sure-footed. You're writing. Did you um, did you get that poem that I wrote about the when you came over to my house to do the music lesson? Oh yeah. Uh huh. And I, was, I always think about that when I think about you with regard to music because 
here I am, I'm like, all right, I'm learning to play guitar. And so you come over and you're like, your understanding of music. So it made me understand you live in a different place. Like you dwell in a different place. I had no idea, except at the most basic level, anything you were talking about. <laughs> and Edward and I have just laughed about this then. Oh, that's great. Because you like are drawing diagrams and then telling me I need to do this. And <laughs> after you left, I called Edward and I'm like, I have no idea what he just told me. <laughs> that's great to know. That's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's how I interpret that. Uh, uh-huh, I can follow you. Yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah, because there's a whole bunch of shit that... With you as a player. Uh-huh. That's actually just stuff that's behind, um, underlaying whatever the manifest thing is. But you're, I was looking the other night, thinking about talking with you, I was looking at Solo Gig, and you're a wonderful writer, so, such a wonderful sense of humor. Solo Gig, it happened in a different manner, that's why I'm thinking that this book that I'm working on now, I, I don't expect it to actually be that good, it's almost like a hobby, because I tried to think of a that I wanted to write a book and solo gig didn't happen like that at all. It I was just writing some stuff and I had already accumulated uh, 20 or 30 bits uh, part of a long unbroken narrative kind of that I later uh, realized was actually a bunch of separate pieces but I and and it it had a flow to it the writing of it that is that I didn't really uh, I was just on the, along for the ride I didn't decide to write a book I didn't realize I was writing a book now that I'm actually uh, have decided that I want to write a book and am fucking around with a manuscript, it doesn't have that feeling to it at all. It feels like, <laughs> like, oh, come on, Williams. It's the only thing that you could think to write a book about is your fucking life. Come on, man. That's, that's, uh, pretty self-indulgent, actually, you know, the only way, it's not like I had anything dramatic happen, you know, like, man, I was in World well, War Well, my friend, who is a poet, and his name is Ni Osundare, he's Nigerian, he was a friend of Dora's, uh-huh. that's how I met him, have you met him? Uh-uh. Uh, he... One time I sent him a bunch of poems. It was before when I was very insecure about whether I was a good writer or not. And I sent him a bunch of poems. I was very felt very shy about it. And I told him, you know, I, I don't think I'm really... Like, I, I think that I'm just one of those people who wants to be a good writer, but I'm not a good writer. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And isn't that the most pathetic thing that could be? 
Like uh-huh. you want, but you're not. Yeah. And yeah, he, I know that line of thought. Yeah, quite well. And <laughs> he said to me, he gave me this advice that I think is the best advice I ever got, which is, and you must kill the killing voice mm-hmm. as an artist. You must kill it. Mm-hmm. So that thing that says, what's so interesting about your life? Mm-hmm. Because we're fucking alive! Yeah. That's what's so interesting! Uh, yeah, okay, I got you. Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, what a trip! Kill the kid. I have boy. a body. That's uh, really good. Uh-huh. Yeah, I got you. Now. Look at thoughts. Wow, look at this. Look at this. Uh-huh. Oh my God, look at all of this. How could you not write about it? There you go. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've been, uh, and then it's a funny thing, like, uh, uh, I don't know if you found this, well, you don't really exactly work this way, as literal as I'm working. I'm literally just uh, kind of like recounting anecdotes of stuff that happened, you know, that just comes to mind. It might be something from my childhood. It might be something that happened on the road, you know, or just odd stuff that I might have noticed, you know. And uh, it, it's funny about that. But uh, some of the very... I have noticed this, is that some of the really funniest things that I have ever experienced that I would really like to convey. Uh, 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 Just don't read funny. Because when you're telling somebody something, uh, you can utilize timing and inflection so that you can convey what was funny about it to somebody else because it came in by way of inflection and subtlety and kind of reproduced that. But if I try to put it on the page, man, it's just flat. So the best thing I could do is just write how impossible it is to write about something funny and actually it'd be funny. Well, are you sure it's flat, or you just think you no, think it's flat, I, or other people think? No, I hadn't tried it on other people, but I can just, I can just tell. Look, man, uh, that ain't what I told John and Coley, and we were laughing our heads off. That ain't that that ain't what I word for word. That's what I said, but that ain't that's missing it completely. You know. Mm. Well, I'm I'm thrilled that you're writing another book. It's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it was, it's, uh, I think it's a good idea to be, uh, working on something. And see, the other thing about this business, about this pain business, and this is the truly disturbing part. Not disturbing because it's temporary, I'm assuming, and I have heard, but it's keeping me from playing. If I sit in that chair, or even in this chair, and pick up the reason I'm playing that instrument over there, electric sitar, is because my main instrument 
is heavy enough and has to be played on a strap that I just can't handle. It's it's like just too excruciating to play, and even that one, I can kind of like. The thing hey, is, you could start playing a Marconi. What is that? It's what Stevie Wonder sometimes plays, and it's in your lap. But really? it's a it's Italian, and it's a mix of a guitar and a piano. Apparently, it has it doesn't it it only has strings, I think. But when I saw him playing it, he was doing something like this. Really. Uh-huh. That might would be a doable thing. What if you did a, p- played a, a steel guitar? I mean, a... a yeah, pe- a lap steel. That's also possible. The thing is, is that what's really extremely difficult and painful is, like, you notice the entire time that we've been sitting here, keep, I've been supporting myself. Either I once. Not, that's why I kept asking, are you in pain or what's going if on? If I do this... Like, and this is, like, say, for example, if, if I do this, whew, that is so painful, I can... Well, don't it. do it then. Okay, and playing is the same way. It, entail, it, entire, it, it involves having both hands free. Lifted. And lifted. And it asks to get the core to uh-huh. work. And so I'm... And, uh, cause, uh, so... Uh, well, they say that if you're, like, in bed one day, you mm-hmm. already start losing muscle mass. Well, that's really clear because my arms are really skinny. I lost a shitload of weight, which is characteristic of um, cancer st- anyway. But, uh, yeah, so I'm doing these exercises and stuff like that. But uh, until this, uh, until I can really... Uh, hold both hands gain regain enough uh, it's not just core strength it's actually that the uh, where was the cancer you didn't finish telling what how you found out about it just the pain and they did so a you bunch went of to the scans and MRIs so the, where was it is it well there's it? a one there's a small one it's called a squamous Maybe squamous cell sarcoma. Sarcoma being a flat cancer, as opposed to a lung, uh, and therefore it's more treatable, apparently. And it's there's a place on my lung that's about maybe that big, a flat spot, and there's somewhere down in my. Uh, Either a smaller spot somewhere on my uh, kidney or liver, somewhere on my organ here, and there's some of it on my back. It started out as bone cancer, at, uh, in all likelihood. In any case, when they took the biopsy, they took a little piece out of my spine. And, uh, so it's the main two places that it's focused, as near as I can tell, are uh, uh, a few which sides of say here in my lung somewhere, and then down one of my internal organs, and uh, so then the uh, 
the, the theory is, and the way it has worked for many, many people, is that the uh, as the uh, chemo, because they got this targeted chemo, which is an IV, but it goes to specific places, and as that begins to address the uh, squamous, what is it, sarcoma? Sarcoma. Uh, then their uh, pain generating capability diminishes. diminishes or even goes away. Uh, and so then I would be able to, uh, to uh, be uh, back to playing. But right now, uh, just strictly uh, in a kind of a cynical uh, view, uh, uh, however accomplished of a guitar player, uh, I mean, any degree of accomplishment no, that's not true. I started to say any degree of accomplishment in my playing is how good I used to be, because my uh, but but my skill and my knowledge of music and my ability to make music out of something, you know. But my uh, as far as like sounding like I sounded in uh, being able to the agility that I had prior to this gig, the last major gig that I. And that is a session, but it's just that uh, it's all, uh, my skill hasn't gone away and my chops kind of haven't gone away, but I'm, I'm having to practice, I, I can only practice for about 10 minutes at a time maximum, and even that is sort of like holding the guitar in some kind of completely weird position. And you're in pain. And finally, it'll be in enough pain to where I just have to stop. And and uh, but I'm experimenting with ways and postures. We spend a lot of our lives like uh, well, I'm I'm, I'm I'm well, like you know, kind of like waking up going fuck. <laughs> Oh fuck, you know. If that wasn't there, that'd be great, you know. And if that was to any degree that that's alleviated, uh, that's great, you know, that's for sure. And uh, especially with somebody that you really, really trust who, I guess what, really likes you. <laughs> that's, that's, that understands. I'm not sure I trust that 100%. But I think that's not anybody's fault. Uh -huh. It's just one of the things I deal with. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Allowing people access. Mm-hmm. Yep, allowing people access, yeah, that's right. I, uh, it's, it's not a... not easy. Well, that stuff never is because, uh, I mean, it, it's, uh, 
it's almost impossible uh, to be in a relationship without having some habit or some tendency on either person that is an irritant to the other person, you know. But that is almost unrealistic for expect that to not be there. And the main thing is what happens in the long arc of it, you know, does it hold together anyway, you know. That's, because I'm sure that I'm, I'm really self-absorbed, you know, and so, uh, and I don't really like that, I'll just do it all, do it without thinking about it. And so, uh, wind up, uh, you know, like, thinking plenty about, oh yeah, I've got cancer and I, I need to do this and that about it. Not thinking enough about, hey, Nico's got cancer too. What do I need to do about that? You know, I'm not just here to make myself feel better, you know, and uh, so, uh, Stuff like that, you know, but the thing is, is that there's a... Well, that's a very unusually extreme example. It is a little bit odd, yeah, that's what you call uh, excessive having something in common with your spouse. <laughs> but we're going to get both of it. Hers is curable, mine's maintainable. I mean, there's, um, I'm as statistically as likely to die of something else before I die of cancer, you know, heart failure or something, you know. So, uh, oops, I was just hitting the microphone. So, uh, man, uh, it's a funny thing, I was, uh, in the oncologist's office, and so he gives me, he, well, me, me and Nico both there, and he's telling me, look, uh, you have a survival cancer, but I just told you, you know, chances are you, and I was so relieved, I was crying with joy at the news that I had incurable cancer, <laughs> you know, and so I thought, well, this is so much better than six months, you know. doesn't really work, but cancer research has come so far, uh, yeah. just the last even five or ten years, you know. whole notion of targeted ra radiation, you know, uh, targeted chemo, you know. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's just amazing, yeah. And uh, man, I got to do an MRI. Have you ever had an MRI? First place, it's... Uh, have earplugs because it's kind of loud. And they're telling me about, you're going to hear some strange noises and stuff. <laughs> and so you lay on this thing, go up in this tube. It's not claustrophobic. You can clearly see out of both ends, but you're inside this tube thing, and then you, but it was just like, This is electromechanical noise. And they said, that's what it lasts about. I said, how long is this thing going to take? They said, oh, well, it at least 45 minutes, maybe an hour and a half. And so I'm just sitting there listening to this thing, you know, and thinking, oh, this is really kind of cool. I was like, well, it's done. 
And uh, I told the guys, the technician, I said, you know what, I've been to electronic music concerts that were way worse than this, you know. I could you know, listen to it again. <laughs> like, At Symphony Space. Yeah, man. That's really interesting. I bet you can. You will be bringing that into your music. I thought about it. Yeah, there, it's. Uh, I wish I could remember exactly. It had these rhythms, not rhythms in a one, two, three, four sense, or even syncopations. But they were just these sequences of. Uh, And it just had this couldn't get not a counted rhythm, but it had a rhythm to it that was I thought really interesting, you know. And it certainly uh I think it was about an hour, and it managed it by like listening to a full piece of music. It was really interesting. You know, I first met you when I came back from New York, and you um, and LaDonna were living on 12th Street. Oh, yeah, uh huh. Um, but you'd already been musical, so you met at University of Alabama, right? Uh huh. LaDonna was a student there, and I was. Hang her around campus, you know. And I audited some classes, but yeah, we met through a mutual friend, Anne LeBaron, who was another music major there. And who was already a friend of us, you know, the weird music people, you know. And, uh, yeah, and then we. We went to, uh, Ann says, I got somebody out of me, another musician. And so it was a state fair, I guess, was in town. So we went to the state fair, got along great. Decided to, and it turned out we lived out around the block from each other. So we started playing. In Tuscaloosa. In Tuscaloosa, uh-huh. And was she on violin then? Yeah, she was, uh, she had just taken up viola. She wasn't playing violin at that point, but she had just taken up viola. Don't remember exactly why she is, she started playing viola, but anyway, uh, yeah. And so, uh, we both had this beginner's mind here's an instrument that she's only been playing about a year and here's an instrument that I've been playing 15 or 20 years but I'm trying to deconstruct. Mm -hmm. So we, we kind of hit on a language that worked uh, together, you know. And then we had, uh, also we were playing in a lot of ad hoc ensembles. Uh, we, I can't remember how long afterwards. Soon enough afterwards, we actually moved into a house together, and uh, it was like 
you know, a big little room, kind of like this, just so a lot of playing got done there, you know. And uh, we were having sessions and stuff over the house. Was this Birmingham by this point, or mm, still this in Tuscaloosa? Still Tuscaloosa. And then LaDonna got it in about seven, that was in about 74, 73. I was still playing in soul bands, see, you know, at that point. And, uh. Did you play with Johnny Shines? Yeah, I played with him and. Seventy one, I guess, first half of seventy one. And then later we did some gigs, like many decades later. Some duo gigs. And then in seventy two, seventy three, probably seventy four, I played in this soul band called Salt and Pepper. And the shit was they had a there were a nine piece black soul band crack outfit, band uniforms, you know, uh, playing upscale, not blues joints, not really part of the blues scene at all, didn't want to be, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, and salt and pepper, I was the salt. The deal was that all black band with one white guy playing, you know, who was uh, playing, just wielding guitar. And so that was, those guys were real good musicians real specific, you know, we played Motown songs. Unlike blues, this song do not go like that, it goes like this. You go play this part right or not. You know, not like, oh yeah, man, blues G. You know, it's totally another story. And so, uh, huge learning experience. And now I was doing that, and then me and, me and LaDonna got hooked up, and then, uh, it was an interesting period because here I'm doing five nights a week and then working on deconstructing guitar and playing free improvisation on this whole another scene, you know. And so, uh, yeah. Anyway, then uh, we... This guy had a friend that worked at a, a record store and he ordered these special order records just because they had cool covers. And they happened to be on this British label and they happened to be by this guy who was playing, Derek Bailey and uh, Evan Parker and those, these guys that were playing free improvisation and making records of it. And I'm thinking, you know, this sounds like it might be being made the way we're playing. It sounds like, like us, you know, not like us, but it sounds like it might be. So got in touch with them and we, uh, we started really uh, realizing that not only were we in Tuscaloosa doing this stuff, but that there was, a, unbeknownst to us, people already elsewhere in the world who had already were working this way. Uh, that there was a whole genre? Uh-huh. I mean and who knew? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, not so much what the music sounded like, but how the fact that it had... A, it was not idiomatic. That is to say, if it had a... aesthetic, it was to not sound like anything pre-existing, if possible, you know. And uh, 
to be answering straight to stimulus, the sound stimulus. Not putting in a key, not jamming around and this or that, just working with pure sound. And then meanwhile, she's getting her uh, master's in theory and composition, and I'm working in the solo band, so it was kind of cool in that dichotomy. And then we start, we, I called up uh, one, some of these Brits, and just out of the blue, they had that. Yeah. I happened to leave there and make a mistake of leaving their phone number on the uh, record. And so we called them up and uh, so they said, you should make records. So we, 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 me and Madonna started putting, first we made miniature reel-to-reel -reel tapes that were about 15 minutes on the side that were roughly as long as a record. And then we actually made some, the first trans phono records. And then, along that time, the, high, the good quality cassette tapes started coming out, becoming available, and that, that was a huge revolution in music production. Because unlike even making records independently, you didn't have to save up any capital burn one at a time, you know, Xerox your own copies, you know, make it however you want to look. That caused a huge revolution, plus they were cheap to mail, all that kind of stuff. So the... And you created your own label? Yeah, although that simply meant that we thought to call it trans music, and uh, put copyright by trans music, and I, we may have even sent off best of copies to the Library of Congress or where we sent them, but come to find out that if you say it's copyrighted and it's an original work, then you do have legal copyright protections without putting yeah. it on file in D.C. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, yeah, that's... Uh, how we got started, and then Nico, uh, not Nico, LaDonna got uh, a job up here in Birmingham, which necessitated us moving to Birmingham, and which is how we wound up living on Gunnar's Park with a bunch of people that somehow we had a connection with, I can't remember, possibly through Lee Hefner. Because he lived there. So that was before the 12th Street house? Yeah. We went from Glen Iris, as I recall, to the 12th Street house, and then to the house on 18th Street. Or did it go the other way? I think it must have gone the other way. I think it went the other way, yeah. I think you're right. Well, the first That's time right. I met y'all was at a surrealist event that was just magnificent that happened at Dora's basement. Oh, yeah. Her whole house was transformed. Yeah, we did. That's and right. everyone dressed up. Uh-huh. And you had to crawl through something. Yeah, and you had to crawl underneath the thing to get to the front door. And, also, and George and I thought that was the best. Like, here we had just left. We had just come from New York. Uh-huh, yeah. And we walked into this scene. Oh, yeah. That was a good show. So we were so excited about uh -huh. the whole community. That was that was a good show actually. Yeah, that that's right. We 
Yeah, and at that point, I don't know where we were living, but yeah, we uh, we were living on Twelfth Street then, and y'all, Ladonna had gotten or y'all had gotten the house on Twelfth Street. That's right, because that's right, because we went from and that was I think nineteen eighty seven. That sounds about right. That's about when uh, when uh, yeah, Ladonna got got that house on 12th Street. We were there for a long time. And then, uh, I mean, like, decades. And then I moved out, when was that, about in 90, or something like that. And then, uh, then I moved over here in about 96, and Madonna and Dewana had hooked up by then, First they lived over there on 58th, and then they and the moved to Mountain Brook. Then they moved out to Yokohama Heights, yeah. So, that to me, that it seems like a really amazing relationship to have had this musical connection with somebody across so many decades. Yeah, we were real lucky in that... Uh, well, we didn't really have a particularly traditional marriage, so we didn't have, like, property custody battles, or we didn't break up because we had a bunch of bad arguments or anything like that. It's, we just realized that we both are going to we'd be better off as friends than we are married, you know. Yeah. And it took a while to realize that in so many words, but that was it. De facto, was happening all along, and so uh, yeah, we're, we're still playing gigs, you know, still friends, you know. And where weren't you overseas? Was that last year? Me and Madonna. No, it was it, that was two or three years ago. We we did this Kush gig, man. It was just in uh, Denmark, right? In this little town out from. Uh, about an hour out of Copenhagen. Uh, it looked in, it's a small town. The architecture looks completely different, but the actual lay of the land looked remarkably like Green County. This kind of prairie, slow rolling prairie with these stands of trees, and not real hilly, but slightly rolling kind of, deciduous trees. It was strange that it looks a little like Green County, like the Black Belt, except no black people, except some of the musicians. But it was, uh, yeah, that was a good gig. It was a week-long, like, residency. And, uh, you know, uh, had chefs, you know, cooking, you know, it was this it had been this some Danish lord's hunting lodge in the <laughs> 1800s, you know. So it was terrific brick kind of building with staircases and big rooms and stuff. And uh, they had us put up this probably more like early 20th century Danish. Everything looks kind of majestic, kind of in Europe, you know, 
compared to like the kind of dumps that we have. Walmart. Here. Yeah, uh huh. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it was a good gig, paid real good. Yeah, that was, that was a good gig. And then uh, we hadn't been on any really seriously cush gigs seeing that. Those two gigs, and but we have done a bunch of good gigs. Uh, seemed like we went somewhere. You were at Art Play recently, right? Yeah, we did a bunch of numerous gigs there and over here at uh, on Forty First Street too in Avondale. Did several sets over there. A lot of the best gigs that we've been playing are not. Uh, large venues, but just, uh, you know, like, real, um, these cool little non-commercial, non-venues that, rooms that sound pretty good and somebody's been putting some gigs on, or like over here, work, what's Art play. Art play, yeah. Art town. Art town. Art town. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to, to me, to... Like to live as an artist rather than having to ask the society to endow me with their opinion about me as an art, you know? Uh, yeah. I don't know if it's if it's why I liked the community that you have been part of or if it's if it rubbed off on me, but it seems like being an artist is is a life choice. Oh, yeah, I think so, yeah. It's not something someone bestows upon you. So uh -huh. some artists, it seems like no matter, they couldn't stop becoming famous even if they tried. It's there's, uh -huh. They're just, it's their path. Yeah, I know. But equally, right. there uh -huh. are so many artists, myself included, who, you know, just do their work and yep. share yep. it with some folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's a it's a great thing. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know that that's right. You got famous people, but and but then you got, like, Sylvia here, you know, or you, you know, people that are putting books out, and they're great, and people know you're great. You already are famous, so what the hell is that about? Yeah, uh-huh. It's a very different kind of approach. Yeah, it, it totally is, and... The nature of the music that we work in all this time has kind of necessitated that because there's, when you're working in such uncommercial music, I mean, music's right. so uncommercial that it's not even going to sound the same from one gig to the next. Yeah. You know, that they're kind of, you got no choice but to be independent. Uh, and I dream of a world where all artists are tre treated with absolute reverence rather oh, yeah, than in this country. You know, I remember going to Spain and quoting Lorca, and people, common people, knew the poems. Yeah. Uh huh. And they would, they loved me because, because you knew I had studied their poetry and came and in Spanish would say, you know, mm -hmm. and it meant something to people. I, I don't know what we have as Americans, as North Americans, um, that is that way. Mm. 
No, we don't have an aesthetic towards... Uh, I mean, Beatles songs, probably some of our songs, right? I mean, I know they're not from the U.S., but yeah. everybody knows those songs, right? Yeah, or not recognize them anyway. Yeah, uh, but we don't have that in literature. Or, or Literature is like kind of this... Uh, Sports or something, you know, like that, entertainment, but we don't really have it. And, but see, there, everything is so spelled out in interpretation. No, it's just the most awful. It's, it's just it's awful. Like, it's not, I, you can't read I just it. so wish some of that money went into the arts. Oh, man, yeah. Because it really is so interesting to be alive. Yeah. And it's so awful to be alive. Yeah. And it is a condition, like it's such a freak out to have a body problem. Yep. So mm -hmm. that who you are or were is out the window, man. Yeah. Anything mm -hmm. you ever knew, thought, assumed. Yeah. Is totally gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, or at least, well, now actually, I was thinking that. But then I realized, actually, they might, that I'm just early enough into experiencing this and experimenting with this to realize that I had thought that. Like, uh, like what I said, whenever it was, a little while ago, that however, I'm, I'm not, I'm the guitarist that I, that was as used right. to as good, that kind of thing. But now I'm not so sure that that's correct. It sounded right when I was first thinking and it sounded right when you just said it, but I'm not sure that actually there's some third third possibility that's neither what it used to be or what it's doomed to be from now on. I'm starting to think that there's some third path that has more to do with transformation than cessation or beginning. Absolutely. In terms of like, for my purposes, guitar ability to play music, there may be some other way that I, because I thought of myself, my whole self-identity was wrapped up for a long time in simply being the guitar player Davy Williams. But whatever that meant, you know, and uh, or to a lesser extent, the writer, Baby Williams. But see, the thing is, is that given that I never actually wrote anything yet by intent, except for this massive load of dribble that I'm screwing around with over here, you know, I'm not sure about that either, you know. The conversation ended here. Davy and I had fully intended to do some more taping and conversing, but that didn't happen. Thanks for listening to this episode. You can listen to Davy's music on YouTube, and he has a full presence on the internet. Davy, D A V E Y. Williams. 
To learn more about Present Tense Podcast, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course you can go to our website at presenttense.media or at greenbucketpress.com. Until next time, keep it deep. Our theme music is by cellist and composer Craig Hultgren. And this episode music is Davy Williams on electric guitar. Thank you.